The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Sheila Sathiana Rayana. She is an associate professor of pediatrics and an adjunct associate professor within the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Washington. Her research interests focus on exposures to endocrine-disrupting chemicals, including phthalates and bisphenol A, and their impact on reproductive development. She is one of the leading authors of a new American Academy of Pediatrics policy statement titled Food Additives and Child Health, which we will be talking about today. Welcome, Dr. Sathiana Rana. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I was really intrigued by this paper because I have been a dietitian for close to 40 years. And I remember very early on in my career, there was great discussion about how children's behavior in particular was affected by food additives. And at the time, we were looking at different diets that would restrict coloring. This particular document looks at a variety of food additives and how they impact child health. Before we dive into the position paper, I'm curious to know how you became interested in this area. I was an environmental science major when I was an undergrad, and I had always wanted to combine environmental work with human health. And so then I went to medical school and then really focused on how environmental exposures affect human health and specifically child health outcomes and have focused specifically on endocrine-disrupting chemicals for most of my career. And what we found over time is that a lot of these chemicals tend to be in our food supply. And so that's why we're here with this current study, which really focused on highlighting food additives in the foods that we eat today. Mm -hmm. Well, we've been looking at this topic for a long time, and our regulatory bodies that are really designed to protect us, and I'm going to focus on the Food and Drug Administration, seem not to be doing their job as well as possible. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how our regulatory structure is designed to protect us and what isn't happening. Yeah, so the Food and Drug Administration is a really large administration. They're in charge of food safety as well as drug safety. And if you just take the example of prescription drugs, they go through many clinical trials before they come to market, and that's how they determine safety. So there's really strict guidelines for how they determine safety for something like a prescription drug. For foods, it's a little bit different. And so there are some regulatory loopholes that allow companies to add additives and other food products into our food supply without adequate safety and toxicity testing. So the major regulation, which was created decades ago, did require some food safety and toxicity data, but it has not been updated since then. And so there are a number of chemicals that have been grandfathered in from a long, long time ago that are added to our food supply. 
and there's been no one who has really reviewed the safety of those chemicals and whether there's new data on them, whether they may now be harmful to human health. So that's one category of chemicals. So then there's another category of chemicals that can enter the food supply through a loophole called generally recognized as safe. It's called GRASS. And the GRASS loophole allows companies to determine whether an additive is safe and then add it to the food supply and just notify the FDA that they have done that. And this loophole really allows for some chemicals to come in that really don't have any adequate safety or toxicity data. So I think we have three different groups of chemicals that kind of enter the food supply, some that have some safety and toxicity data, but it hasn't been updated, some that have none at all, and we really need more data, and some that enter into this loophole. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because in your paper, you write that the Government Accountability Office conducted an extensive review of the FDA GRASS program in 2010 and determined that the FDA is not able to ensure the safety of existing or new additives. And you go on to explain that most of those assessments were done by individuals who were either employees of the manufacturer, who were hired by a consulting firm that the manufacturer hired, or that they were made by someone or an expert panel that was selected by this consulting firm. In other words, none of the evaluations were made by an independent third party. That's correct. Yeah. And so some of these food companies will hire consultants to help them do their toxicity data or to provide information to FDA. And I think that what this part of the paper is really getting at is that there's not transparency in the process, and it's not required that there be that kind of transparency. So industry is able to provide any data to FDA, and FDA will accept it under this loophole. And what would be better is if there were independent third parties that were either evaluating the safety or toxicity data or determining the safety and toxicity themselves. Exactly. And we should just let our listeners know that today there are more than 10,000 chemicals that are allowed to be added to food and food contact materials. And we should probably explain there are two categories of these kinds of additives. One is called direct and the other is called indirect. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, so direct additives are added directly into the food, and indirect additives are things that can enter through contamination process. And so, for an example, one of the classes of chemicals that we talk a lot about are phthalates. And phthalates are synthetic chemicals that are in plastics, and there are a lot of food packaging pieces like cardboard or other that have plastic linings, or there may be plastic coatings on a frozen dinner. And phthalates can be used in any of these plastic pieces. And so they're not directly added into the food, but they indirectly get into the food supply because they are contaminants in the whole manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes during the summer, I'll see that there will be a food drive. And I will see 
crates of processed food sitting outside in high temperatures. And the first thing that pops into my mind is, oh my gosh, do you know there's got to be compounds that are migrating from the packaging into the food? Is no one else concerned about this? I'm sure you are. I wish there were more guidelines around the way we store and package our food that would help protect the innocent, especially children who are more vulnerable. Have you seen any kind of policies along those lines? Any policies that would specifically protect children's health? Right. Mm -hmm. In terms of this specific area on food additives, I have not seen specific regulatory policy coming from the government that would adequately protect children's health. I have seen a number of consumer groups or nonprofits who've put out some nice recommendations for families. Right. Such as perhaps the Environmental Working Group, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Those are good places for people to go. And we can provide some additional links as well as this excellent paper why the focus on children? You know, what is it that makes children more vulnerable? Yeah, so children are not little adults. They really have developing brains, developing organ systems. And what we know now is that what we expose children to early in life can really affect their later life health outcomes. So that period of development, especially in utero during pregnancy, as well as early childhood, zero to five, is just so important for the rest of their lives. And this is the period when very important organs are developing and being programmed. And so that's why we are really concerned about their exposure at very early ages. Mm -hmm. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that if these chemicals are tested. They are tested individually, but never in combination. Yes, that's usually the case. The toxicity testing paradigm usually tests one chemical at a time to determine its toxicity in animal studies and usually does not do a mixture of chemicals. And I'm not a toxicologist, so I can't really to the exact reasons for that, but from being involved in a lot of policy work over time, I think it's because it's very, very difficult to determine the permutations and combinations that you would need to reflect human exposure, and because also human exposure is changing very quickly. Yeah, it really is. Why is our exposure changing? Well, I think that there's a number of reasons for our exposures changing food. First, our food supply has really changed over time in terms of a reflection of agricultural practices going from small farms to bigger industry-based farms. I also think that manufacturers and companies have started to make newer and better, tastier products. And the more processed a product is, the more likely it is to contain contaminants and other chemicals that we may not want to be exposed to. And then also manufacturers and industry are constantly changing their products. You know, things may only be popular for one to five years, and then they change their formulation. And so given all of these factors that are evolving over time, what we are exposed to really changes. Yeah. And I've interviewed Dr. Frederick Vamsal. He, of course, is known for his groundbreaking work on BPA, for example, or bisphenol A, which is contained in canned linings. 
And now we can go to the store, we can buy cans, and we can buy water bottles that say no BPA. But what I learned from him was the replacement compounds have not been adequately tested, and they could be endocrine disruptors themselves. That's true. So there are replacement compounds for bisphenol A. Bisphenol S is one of them. Bisphenol F is another. And we are starting to see some toxicity data come out on these alternatives but not a lot. And I think that that really highlights one of the big pieces of our paper report in that we really try to highlight that there's so many chemicals that are out there in our food supply where we don't have any safety or toxicity data. And those are the ones that I think we're most concerned about because we really just don't know what potential health effects they may have. Yeah. Listeners, if you're just joining us, I want to remind you that you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Sheila Sathiana Rayana, and she is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Adjunct Associate Professor of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Washington. Dr. Sathiana Rayana, one of the things that I find so intriguing about your work in particular is that you have both an MD and an MPH, Master's in Public Health. You define yourself as a physician scientist where you are able to practice general pediatrics, and then you also conduct research that's focused on pregnancy exposures to endocrine-disrupting chemicals and early childhood outcomes. So you're able to see children, and yet you're able also to go into the laboratory and take a closer look with some of these chemicals. So I want to know, do you think that you are seeing changes in behavior and physical health related to dietary changes and increased consumption of these processed foods that are heavy in additives? Well, I think that there's been two trends that we've seen over time. One is obesity. There's an obesity epidemic, and we feel like that's reflective of a food supply that is higher in sugars and fat than it used to be, and also larger portion sizes, and also more sedentary activity. And then we're also seeing changes in child behavior, a lot more ADHD and autism increases in the population. And I think that there have been studies that have related some food components to changes in child behavior specifically. And with our own research here at Seattle Children's and in our Center for Health, Behavior, and Development, Some of our psychologists have found that when they change children's diets, they see a profound change in their behavior without medications. And I think that that really speaks to the fact that our diet truly impacts our health and not in the traditional ways that you might think of and just how much do I weigh, how healthy is my heart, but also how do I feel, what is my mood, how am I behaving today? And so... I think that there are definite trends that really do reflect our general lifestyle and specifically food. Well, that means a great deal coming from a pediatrician who has examined children and who has looked at trends over time. I think as dietitians, we do tend to focus on the research that looks at that, but coming from a pediatrician and having this policy statement, I would hope would drive policy change. That's always the mission of science, right? To work to change policy to protect the most vulnerable. Which brings me to another point in this paper, which is that there are racial and ethnic differences in food additives and children's exposure. And that gets to the social and environmental justice piece that this paper speaks to. And 
even the recommendations for pediatricians and for people who are taking care of children to provide recommendations like prioritize consumption of fresh and frozen fruits and vegetables when possible. You know, and I know that there are so many communities that don't have access to that kind of food. What do you say to parents who are really struggling economically with regard to helping their children eat better? I think that rural populations versus urban are very different. And our obesity trends certainly are nationwide, but they are focused in urban areas. And urban areas are where we should have access to fresh foods, fruits and vegetables. And so I do think that in urban areas, we can really try to help educate as well as direct families to best choices for their children. One myth that I do want to talk about is in the environmental health world, people often say, well, buying that way is more expensive than some of these processed foods. And that is just not true. Processed foods are actually more expensive than buying fresh fruits and vegetables. I think where you see the economic cost is in the time it takes to prepare those fresh fruits and vegetables versus something like a processed food. And certainly a lot of our socioeconomically disadvantaged populations do not have time to prepare foods. And so I've also seen with a lot of nonprofit groups education on how to prepare healthy foods for families and for the dinner table for working parents. And I think that that's the kind of thing that we really need to focus on and shifting away from eating quick processed foods constantly. Right. And microwaving products, they come in plastic packages oftentimes, or even a pizza box. If we think about, it's not just cardboard, it's cardboard that has like a plastic lining in it. And that will also have compounds that migrate from it into the food. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned urban and rural, because what I see happening, at least in my neck of the woods in rural communities, is that You'd think we'd have a lot of fresh food in rural communities, and some families do have gardens. But I will say that the supermarket has become the fast food place where we also get gas. And when you see a dollar menu, for example, where you can get a burger and fries for a dollar versus going into the supermarket and seeing a basket of blueberries for $2.99 or $3.99 or more, that's where I think we tend to get that confusion about, well, gosh, this processed food is cheaper. I like to go to the other end of the equation and say, but how much does diabetes medication cost or cancer down the road? So I'm very much intrigued by the cost-benefit analysis. And I know you've looked at that in the past. Maybe you don't have the numbers in front of you, but I'm not sure how we can get these messages through that these processed foods really are expensive at the end of the day. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think that What we have seen and what we have done in past papers is try to do some economic modeling of the burden of these kinds of chemicals and exposures in the general population. And we've done that modeling by looking at the incidence of diseases that occur as related to these chemical exposures. So that's the attributable fraction to the exposure. And then doing a cost estimate of how much that burden is in the overall population. And when you look at those numbers, they're staggering. They're not in the millions of dollars. They can be in the billions of dollars. 
So the economic cost of these kinds of processed foods for our population is really staggering and non-trivial. And I think, though, that it is a burden that is often formed by families as well as by government and not by manufacturers or private industry. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when we talk about what people can afford and why not, that, you know, that goes back also to economic policies and how people are paid for their jobs or if they don't have time to cook, why is it? And you know firsthand in dealing with families that many times a parent, maybe a single parent, that single parent may have to work two, sometimes even three jobs just to stay afloat. So it's this much larger story and economic picture and regulatory picture that we really need to get to if we're going to solve child health problems. And I can't imagine what could be more important. You mentioned that our regulatory system is really not designed to protect the population against some of these additives. And I think about some of the policies that are set up, say, in the European Union, where there's a much greater emphasis on the precautionary principle, for example. Can we not simply model our system by using some of the regulatory actions that the EU has taken to clean up our own food supply? Yeah, I think the EU is certainly at the forefront in some areas of doing this. And I think what we have seen from what they've done is that it's not very simple. These are complex questions, and the regulatory action is also complex. So it does require a lot of thoughtful interpretation of data as well as forward thinking in terms of protecting human health. So I don't know if it would be mirroring what they've done there, but certainly learning from it and moving forward. But it would have to be a priority for our rulemakers. Mm -hmm. I know as both an educator and working with populations of children and parents, one of the ways in which I try to reduce demand for these kinds of processed foods is I recommend that children not spend a lot of time with media. Because if you look at what is advertised to children, just say on Saturday morning cartoons, we see a lot of products that fall into the range of products that you're actually recommending that children eat less of. So products that contain heavy packaging, products that contain a lot of added flavors and colors. And especially around candy season, we see so much more of this kind of product on supermarket shelves. How do you help parents in your own practice navigate this world of products that are highly processed? Yeah, I think it's not easy. I think that there is a lot of marketing to our kids and families. But I also see some positives from the obesity work that's been done where we have really focused on creating strong, positive messages to families and to really have them understand the consequences of eating a lot of processed foods and especially foods that are high in sugar, which Halloween often has a lot of foods that are high in sugar. And we also try to give messages to parents that are reasonable. So it's not reasonable to say that your child is going to be trick-or-treating and get all this candy and you're going to take it away from them and maybe give them fruit instead and you know tell them they have a sugary substitute. That's not realistic. It's not going to happen. But you can have a discussion with them at the beginning before they go out and trick-or-treat 
that we're going to go out and have fun and get all of these treats, but we're only going to eat a portion of them and we're not going to eat them all at once. We'll have a little bit one week and maybe a little bit the next week and that's it. And so I think really creating clear expectations and creating some kind of balance in terms of the foods that they're really excited about eating but also trying to help them be excited about the others as well. Mm -hmm. I always recommend that parents feed their children a good, healthy dinner before they go out and start trick-or-treating so that the candy doesn't replace the dinner, the healthier food that might have been consumed. I want to turn the program over to you in terms of what would you like to make sure you let our listeners know about this policy position paper? Yeah, I think that one of our main points is first just education, that we wanted people to know that there are regulatory loopholes and that our food supply isn't always completely safe in the way that we think it is. And there's certainly lots of things that we're being exposed to that current regulations do not account for. And if people are concerned, I think they really should bring this up with their local policymakers. I think we're in an era of learning more about politics and how our political systems work. And this is one arena in which you can contact your own policymaker and give them your opinion on this issue as related to the food supply, not only for children, but for all of us. Mm -hmm. And you've got some recommendations for policymakers in this particular paper, and we'll make the paper available on our website. You have recommendations for government, and you have recommendations for parents. So in addition to prioritizing the consumption of fresh or frozen fruits and vegetables, you also have a warning about not microwaving food in plastic and avoid putting plastics in the dishwasher. So often we see labels on plastics that say dishwasher safe. And I don't know of any plastics that are dishwasher safe. Right. I actually don't either, but I also don't look for them because I don't wash any plastics in the dishwasher. Right. But in terms of the heating of plastics, lots of these chemicals can migrate out of the plastics into food through a heating process. And so that's why we really try to focus on decreasing heating plastic containers with foods. And you also have a warning to look for certain numbers or recycling codes on the bottom of some of the plastic containers. You say to avoid plastics with recycling codes three, that indicates that phthalates are present, six, that indicates styrene is present, and seven, which indicates that bisphenols are present. And you know, it's interesting, everyone I speak to who does research in this area does not use plastic materials in their home. They use glass containers to store and reheat food. I'm sure it's the same in your kitchen. It is. And just to clarify one of the things you just said, that recycling code number seven is actually a catch-all term. It could have a number of different components in it. So bisphenol A may or may not be in products with seven. Okay. Um, but that is the code. If it does contain bisphenol A, it is likely to have that code. So I just wanted to make that clarification. And yes, in my own home, I will say that I have almost universally glass containers. There are a few leftover plastic containers that may be storing some things, but they are never heated and rarely used. 
Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for all of this good information. As I said, we will make this paper available online to all of our listeners. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Sheila Sathiana Rayana. She is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Adjunct Associate Professor of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Washington. And she is one of the lead authors on a new American Academy of Pediatrics policy statements titled Food Additives and Child Health. Thank you so much for being with me today. Of course. Thank you. Thank you.